The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 204. One of the original name ideas for Amazon was Relentless.com. Check out what happens when you type it in now, 20 years later. And don't worry, yes, it's suitable for work. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is a fellow travel lover and podcaster, as well as author of multiple books, including Hack Sleep, Hack Email, and Buy Your Own Island, Danny Flood, editor at Open World Magazine. Danny, thanks for joining us today, and welcome. Hey, Travis, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah, and I think I've been using the app Slack too much because I almost said Slack Heap instead of Hack Sleep. So that's Hack Sleep, guys. That's Danny's <laughs> new book. And I just, you're in Thailand right now, right? Yeah, Thailand's been my base for the last year, but I've been uh, pretty much almost full time nomadic uh, since. 2009. I mean, it started out with just like small trips and I've just kind of been extending them. You know, I, I started out with just like one month in Mexico, just a, a tested. And then I was like in South America for three months and Central America for three months. And it was six months. Now I've been traveling for a year and a half and uh, just living abroad and just traveling everywhere, everywhere I want to go, you know, and just doing the location independent thing, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I and I want to dig into some of your books in just a little bit, but I always like kind of hearing the backstory because, you know, right now we hear, oh, Danny's nomadic and he's been nomadic for about six years and that's great. And like you said, you've, you've been doing it and it's been fun, but what was going on before you were nomadic? Because I assume that you were not raised as a nomad. Uh, no, I wasn't, but I think I was always nomadic uh, just in general because I... I probably have the record number of sick days in high school where I was skipping class and I had to get a doctor's note, you know, every time I skip class just to make up some excuse why I'm not there <laughs> because I just, I hated sitting still, I guess, you know, and the same thing in college, I was like promoting parties instead of going to class, you know, and, and just the classes in college were like four hours long and I would just take, you know, long bathroom breaks of like a half an hour or something and go wander around I just I found it so hard to sit still. It's it's almost like death. You know, when you're dead, you're you're catatonic. You're still. You're you're in a, a state where you can't move. So I just need to keep keep moving. It makes me feel alive. You know. So <laughs> was there anything going on? And I totally resonate with that. Before you before you started traveling, though, were you in any type of regular job, or has it always been something like promoting parties and out on the go and this this kind of more active lifestyle? Uh, no, not really. I've never been able to hold a job for more than a month before I quit. You know, <laughs> I, I get bored, I hate it, or I get fired. You know, I've, I've been fired, you know, when I was a teenager, my dad got me a factory job, you know, making like golf clubs or something. And I think I screwed up a batch of products like on my first day and I got fired, you know, and the guy brought me in his office and I just, 
I hate the feeling of, of coming to the office and saying, you know, your work sucks or we, we don't want you here and, and you have to leave. So I just really, I was, you know, like there reached a point where I was like, this, this is not for me. You know, I, I clearly am not meant to be an employee. I'm clearly not meant to sit at a desk. I need to figure out everything I can to make it on my own. And I've done, uh, you know, I've been doing entrepreneurial ventures, you know, ever since I was nine years old because my dad, uh, he was an entrepreneur and he would tell me to like, you know, go around knocking on doors, offer to take out people's trash for them. And, you know, because uh, we lived in this condominium and we'd say, you know, I'll take your trash out to the dumpster. You know, it's, it's complimentary. I just work for tips. So he, he kind of like instilled that hustle in me. And, you know, I've started all kinds of just like ventures. Most of them failed. You know, I, I failed after one thing after another, but I kept learning about entrepreneurship. And it wasn't really until after I graduated college and, I, you know, obviously I had the traditional path, where I, a traditional story where I didn't like the traditional career path and needed to escape from that. Um, and I think that travel really, really, really gave me the street smarts that I needed to succeed as an entrepreneur. I, I've changed so much uh, as a result of travel. What were some of those things, you know, right after college? Because a lot of people listening will say, all right, well, that's, you know, I'm entrepreneurial too, but that doesn't mean I'm a successful entrepreneur, right? Like a lot of the stories start with, I tried this and I failed, I tried this and I failed, I tried this and I failed, and so on, so on, so on. What were some of the things that you found yourself doing after college when you said, all right, well, I know I'm not in for this traditional job type thing, and you couldn't hold down different jobs. Were there anything that happened that were either spectacular failures that you learned a lot from or kind of the stepping stones to where you got now? Yeah, sure. So that's a good question. Um, I graduated with an advertising degree from the Art Institute, and I don't even know how I ended up in the Art Institute. I kind of just showed up one day <laughs> and... I guess because I didn't have to have like all these qualifications or anything that they would just accept me that I, I, I somehow made it through there with an associate's degree. And then I was like, you know, okay, I had this, this advertising degree and I just started doing freelancing projects. Um, you know, some of the early projects they did was do a logo for like a hundred dollars or something like that. I started working really hard and just networking and, you know, really like pushing, pushing, pushing really hard. Uh, but I wasn't really getting anywhere. You know, I had income goals that were pretty arbitrary um, and, and in my book, I talk about, in my book, Buyer on Island, I talk about two different types of location independent businesses, or any business really. Uh, the first type is called half, which is hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating. And the second type is elf, which is easy, lucrative, and fun. So I think a lot of. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. So that's like more of a lifestyle business than the second type. But I think a lot of businesses start out as half, you know, because the owner is doing everything himself. Um, you know, he's working nights and weekends, and that's fine if you love what you do, but there's things that you can incorporate into that business that make it elf, you know, to build in leverage. And that's why all of the books that I write about are, are hacks, you know, hack this, hack that, because a hack is a way to defy, uh, defy convention and do, work smarter, not harder, you know, and, and gain more leverage. If you have a lever that's long enough, you can move the world. And that, that's really what it is, so that with less effort, you can do more. That, that's why I'm so obsessed with this, this, you know, these writing books about hacks and learning about life hacks. But as far as, you know, the transition that I made from, you know, overworked entrepreneur, what I did is um, at this point, you know, I was, I was pretty desperate in my business. I wasn't getting anywhere. And I, I contacted my friend. I was like, hey, you know, I want to do this exercise from the four-hour work week. It's called dreamlining because um, I don't really have anything motivating me in my life. I don't have any goals that excite me. All my goals are related to work, you know, like add staff or increase revenue, all this stuff. It doesn't make me come alive. So I gathered three of my friends at this cafe in Pacific Beach, uh, San Diego. And, you know, to keep ourselves accountable, we did this exercise together. And we wrote down all of our dream goals, everything we dream about being, having, or doing. 
Um, and many of mine, you know, involve travel to exotic destinations. I've wanted to like do tango in Buenos Aires or, you know, I, I've done a lot of things. Like I, I trained as a Muay Thai boxer in Bangkok for six months. You know, I've, I've learned several languages, uh, studied Tai Chi. I've been able to, been fortunate to make all these dream goals reality. And it all really started with that conscious intention, you know, writing them down, figuring out what are the steps I need to do, how much is it going to cost? And in a lot of cases, it costs a lot less than you think. It's such a completely different feeling when you're actually living out your dream. And it's like, this is the height of everything I imagine. And when you get to that point, you realize what I want to do next, I want it to be even bigger and better than what I've just done. You know, I don't want to go back to a cubicle and, and you know, nine to five job in San Diego. I can't go back to that life because I've experienced such a high. And everyone that's back there in the cubicle, they're envying me. So why do I want to join them? <laughs> you know, and, and I've learned so much just from travel. And, and it's a lot of the things I've learned from travel, which we can talk about later, I've been able to apply to entrepreneurship as well. But especially like just, just being able to believe in myself, growing into my skin. Um, it's done a lot for my confidence. And I've learned that there's, there's so many amazing people out there that I never even thought, I never would even have met them if I had stayed at home. So it, it's, it's changed me so much, Travis. And um, I, I could go on about this topic for forever, but I, I want to give you a chance to, to chime in. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that that is a super important lesson in there that you decided to flip the script and say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, transition from these goals like even though you were entrepreneurial your your goals were still set in the mindset of regular society right like all right well you're doing your own thing so that's kind of the first step like i don't want a nine-to-five job i don't want to work for someone else all right how do i do that i, I then become an entrepreneur i start my own company but your mindset was still stuck in art, revenue, adding staff, this and that. So you're almost trading one for another, right? It's like, all right, well, I'm working for myself, but I'm still going after what those people are going after. It's just for myself. So it's like first step, right? And then going and dreamlining, um, as Tim Ferriss mentions in the 4-Hour Workweek, completely flips the script and says, all right, instead of worrying about everything that everyone else is worrying about, why don't you worry about the things that you actually are passionate about? And I think that's a really important lesson and not one that's easy, you know? And and I know you said like, all right, you did it with friends and they held you accountable. But was it like an aha moment where all of a sudden you're like, nope, now I'm going to live my life completely different? Or were there kind of points in there where you said, all right, I'm going to do this and you're all excited, but then there was obstacles to overcome? Uh, there's been all kinds of obstacles overcome, but I think the key is really your mindset. And I talk about this in, in section one of my book, Bio and Island. It starts out with the mindset. Um, and I'm a little bit crazy in this aspect, so you don't have to be as crazy as me. But um, there's a concept in The Art of War by Sun Tzu where he talks about the concept of death ground. Um, so when soldiers are on their death ground, you know, they're going to fight like hell to, to get free or they're going to die trying. Um, so I like deliberately put myself in these situations where there was no way back. You know, I had to make this work. Um, you know, I'm living on like $5 a day in Borneo or something like that. And I have to figure this out, you know, and, and that's also the same as like, uh, I get a story of like Hernan Cortez when he arrived in Mexico, he burnt his own ships because, uh, he didn't want soldiers to kind of squabble amongst themselves. So whenever you have that conflict inside of yourself where you can't go forward, you know, you need to change something in your life. And, and that's kind of what I did. I mean, I deliberately put myself in these situations where I had to, to make what I wanted reality because there was no going back for me. And while, you know, these days I'm, I'm doing pretty well, but instead of doing that, I try to remind myself to really think about death uh, every single day if possible. 
Um, because I feel like a lot of us, we don't really realize that our time is limited on this planet. So we really push back our goals, you know, into the future because we think we have so much time. Well, really, we don't. And I really learned this from uh, in Bhutan. Uh, they have these, I think it's called sky burials, where they actually put like a human body on a mountain. And the, these, these vultures will come and like tear the body apart. And in the Bhutanese, you know, they often see this. And they're reminded that, you know, this, this is what's going to happen to me. And it, it seems very dark, but there's actually kind of joy in that because it, it helps them to appreciate the present moment. And, you know, in Bhutan, they, they're, they're called the happiest people on earth. And a big part of that is because they're, they're so familiar with that. And for me, that, that's really important. You know, if there's anything I really want to do, I have nothing to lose. I, I need to take that risk. The distances between, you know, on a map are huge. And I, I sometimes I get overwhelmed. I have these doubts. Uh, but then, you know, I have nothing to lose. I might as well just do it. So, and just as a quick aside, I mean, this is a travel podcast after all you mentioned Bhutan and I know a lot of people are intrigued by Bhutan who know about it because they do things a little differently and they're known as the world's happiest people, as you mentioned, but it's, it's an interesting way that you have to travel there. And, and some people are, may not even be aware of it. So can you share kind of the process you had to go through to get to Bhutan and then also what the experience was like there on the ground? Yeah, sure. So it was an amazing experience. Uh, definitely not cheap, though. Uh, the time that I went, I think the rates were uh, during high season from March to November. Uh, if you have a group of three or more people, it was 250 per person per day. Uh, but that that includes all of your uh, you know meals, accommodation, internal transports, and they put you up in some pretty nice tea houses. So uh, you're not going to be skimping it or, or you know staying in hostels or anything like that. But I, I went through a tour company. I think it was called Bhutan Life Exposure. I, I think in low seasons, January, February, and then some months in the in the summer and then December. Uh, I think you can do 200 per person. Per day with if you have three or more in your group so that that comes out to if, if you're going for a week that's that's i'm sorry if you're going for 10 days that's two two grand right basically right definitely uh, not cheap but there is no <laughs> other way to go about it like and when so danny's saying this it's not that you have other options you have to go through the government sponsored yeah. or government recognized tour companies you can't be an independent traveler just coming in and saying hey where am i going to stay i'm going to backpack through this country <laughs> But there, there are some really good alternatives, you know, around uh, around Bhutan. Like the, I think it's the Arunachal Pradesh in India, northeast India. I've been wanting to go out there. There's a place called Nagaland, which uh, just recently opened to to tourism, like less less than ten years ago, maybe like five years ago. It was it was so like traditional that uh, if you were a male trying to travel there, it was a really big deal. Like you had to produce a marriage certificate. Uh, because they didn't want any single men coming to visit their their uh, their territory. So, um, but yes, Bhutan is amazing though, and it's it's really um, traditional, very Buddhist. Uh, spirituality is very important to them, and they really kind of live very harmoniously with the earth and nature. And um, it's definitely worth checking out. It's a, it's a little bit boring though. It's don't go there if you're looking for nightlife or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nightlife is lacking in Bhutan, but you do have a bunch of pretty <laughs> um, cliffside dwellings and things like that. So just p- pick what you want. If you want nightlife, you can go to Copenhagen. If you want spirituality and serenity, go to Bhutan. There you go. I want to dive into these, into these books because that kind of forms um, the base of what you've been doing now um, and what you've been doing in the last couple of years. 
And at this point, I believe you have five books. And they're all, as you talked about, touching on some aspect of life hacking, whether that be the newest one, Hack Sleep, whether it be hacking email. Um, you've mentioned Buy Your, I- Your Own Island a few times, which is kind of all about how to hack life to become location independent. So how did it, I guess, how did you get started in writing the books? What was the first one? And what have you learned going through the process of now writing five different ones? Yeah, sure. So if you go back to where we left off with my backstory, um, and I was talking about, you know, living out all these dream goals uh, around the world, I, I was at the point where I had just crossed Vietnam on a motorbike. And I had dreamt about this trip. And it was so amazing, you know, it took about a month, across the entire country from Saigon to Ho Chi Minh City. And I started the manuscript for my first book from a little cafe by the roadside there in Hanoi. And the reasoning was I I reached a point where I was like, wow, you know, I'm, this is really it. I'm living my dream, but what's next for me? You know, what am I going to, it's like someone who's focuses their whole life on revenge or something and then they get revenge. <laughs> what's, where's the rest of your life going to go? You know? So, um, you know, my name is Indigo Montoya or, or whatever, you know? So, uh, so I reached a point where I was like, well, you know, I've had all these great experiences. You know, I've learned so much. I really want to write a book. Uh, you know, just kind of sharing everything I've learned from these last four or five years of just kind of getting my life to where it is now. And so I wrote a book. Um, it was called Buy Your Own Island. And that wasn't the title originally. Uh, but, but the idea was that it's about taking your biggest dream goals and making them reality. And I just wrote everything from the heart, you know, trying to present a plan for, for whatever your goal is, whether you want to buy your own island or whatever it is. When I travel the world, um, you know, I want to show you how to make it happen the way that I made it happen. I put a lot of work into the first book. It was 323 pages. I definitely didn't skimp, and it took a long time. Uh, and, and when I first wrote, I was actually here in Bangkok when I started my writing career. I couldn't even write in a word processor. You know, I had to I had to talk into my iPhone because I didn't want to sit in front of a screen. I would just stare at the blank screen. And I wouldn't be able to write. And so I was I was talking into an iPhone, and I was outsourcing that to Odesk, and some girl would transcribe it. Like it was really really tough for me to start writing this book. And when I, when I finished, when I started to finish up my manuscript, I looked at the early entries and I was like, I can't do anything with this. I can't show this to anybody. The, the quality is just not, not there. It's not what I want it to be. Um, so I really learned a lot, you know, writing the book. And it, it did take a long time. I mean, I didn't make a mental monster out of it. And it took me a long time to figure out the formatting and stuff. But um, I think it's really instructive for life, though, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, you just you just got to keep pushing. You got to keep pushing yourself forward. You got to meet yourself every day. Um, get out of your comfort zone. You're going to learn so much. You're going to you're going to keep improving, and getting better. And and now I can write two thousand words before breakfast. You know, almost without thinking. But you know, and, and so like I'm at I'm at my fifth book now, and it's Hack Sleep. And I just had the most successful book launch ever. Like I'm literally selling between eighty to one hundred copies a day of this book. And the only way I got to this point is because I, I failed the launches of four other books. You know, I, I didn't want to say that I failed them, but I didn't know how to rank in Amazon's algorithm so that Amazon naturally promotes my book. Now, with this latest launch uh, a few weeks ago, it's number one in three categories. It's also number one at the hot, hot new releases section. So I'm getting way more people reading this book than any of my other books. But the point is that, you know, this, this was a journey. I mean, I, I'm always thinking about what I'm going to do next. How can I improve on what I did in the past? And you're not going to be able to do anything perfect the first time. So you just got to keep, you know, learning, improving and evolving processes. It's not always about hitting home runs. Sometimes you need to write a book and it's just a single or you hit a double or you hit triple and you do better and you just keep learning and going and, and growing as you go. So 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's such an important lesson that you said you turn it into a mental monster. I think that's a great way of putting it. And I know the first time I sat down to write a book, it was it, it seemed like the culmination of everything I know. And, you know, and like, and this is going to be it. And then I wrote it and I didn't do anything with marketing or, you know, it was like done. I was just I was so happy to be finished it. And I think there, there's some validity in that. You know, you should take time to sit back and say, all right, this is done. This is a big project. It's finished. But then it was like on to the next thing right away without ever then taking what it was and trying to make it. You know, I think people think they're done when they're done the writing, which is just the beginning. And you kind of touched on that with, okay, I wrote four books. I, I tried to launch and it didn't go as well as I thought. And then this fifth one is blowing it out of the water. Now, what were some of those lessons that you learned? Like, was there, did you say, all right, I'm going to start studying Amazon and figure this out? Or was it just you figured out a piece by piece by piece throughout each book that then all of a sudden the puzzle came together and you were able to rank on Amazon? Travis, it was just a hack. That's all it was. It was one thing that I didn't know about in the previous launches. You want to know what it was? Yeah, I was going to say, are you going to share it with us? You're going to have some competition then, but hey, it's always a good thing. Okay. So with my first four books, uh, what I did is I did a free promotion. And I don't think there's anything wrong with doing a free promotion. Um, You definitely should do them. But if you want to really sell your books, you have to do a 99 cent promotion within like the first week. And the best way to do that is to use a service called Buck Books. I think it's buckbooks.net. And if you have a good book that you're planning to um, plan to publish, you get in contact with them. I think their listing fee right now is $32. And what they do is they have a huge list of maybe like 25,000 readers of uh, subscribers, email subscribers. And they will put, they will feature your book in their newsletter. And you can get like 100 downloads, you know, within the first five days or something like that, or the first week. And if you do that, Amazon's going to see that it's it's a really hot item and it's going to promote it to, you know, as they want to sell books that are selling well. So if, if you can get on Buck Book's schedule uh, within the first week that your book comes out, uh, you're pretty much golden. And I actually have a whole launch timeline, you know, as far as the preparation, as far as how to write your copy, as far as how to get reviews, um, that I, I often write about this subject and I've, I've interviewed a lot of authors for my podcast who have really shared their their tips and that's really how I learned how to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. Is there any specific episodes? I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but we'll link all the stuff you're talking about in the show notes because it's super actionable and awesome. But is there any episodes that you specifically can mention or about um, about this topic that you've had on your podcast that people were saying, all right, this is something that really interests me. I want to go check out Danny's podcast and I want to listen to this episode or this episode or this episode. Yeah, sure. So I was actually thinking about this today. Um, if you go to openworldmag.com uh, and put in a search bar, just search for self-publishing. There's there's a few podcasts on there. I have a, a resource page of places you can submit your book to if you do a free promo. And again, I think free promos are great if you want to build a mailing list. Every time I do a free promo, I get about 100 new email subscribers. Um, but if you want to know like really the specifics and like how long, you know, how you should set your book price, um, what your launch timeline should be like, how to set everything up. I'm actually thinking of doing like a, a webinar or perhaps a Google Hangout um, for people who are serious about self-publishing their books um, pretty soon. So if, if you want to get on that, um, shoot me an email at danny at openworldmag.com 
and I'll be able to shoot over the details. And I'll kind of just run through the entire process, answer any questions. And um, I know that it, it will make a big difference because I've, I've seen it. I've seen the results of this happen. Yeah, that is, that's incredible. Thank you for that, Danny. Because I think, you know, everyone want not everyone, most people as one of their big dreams, you know, I think if you're looking at the, the standard huge dreams, what do you want to do? It's like travel the world, buy my own island, which is, you know, the title of your book and, and, and write a book. Like everyone wants to write a book for the most part. And I think a lot of things that scare them is a, it's going to be a lot of work, which there's no real way around that. It is going to be a, a decent amount of work. But the other thing is, what if no one reads it? Or, you know, what if it's a failure? And I think, as you mentioned, there are these hacks, especially with the systems we have in place now, with with Amazon being the go-to for books. You know, if you can hack Amazon and, and get it going like you just did, you know, here you're saying you're getting 100 downloads a day of people buying your book and you're not doing anything that drastically different from what you did before, except for the fact that you you figured out a way to make it work. And I think that's pretty incredible. And if people know that going into it, there's a little extra motivation, right? And fuel for the fire of like, all right, th- this could work because I'm I'm hearing an expert tell me how to do it. Yeah, exactly. It absolutely can work. Um, but then you really have to push through that that fear like you can't do it, you know, or that people won't buy it. Um, I, I had to deal with the same thing myself, but then I reasoned that, you know, I don't really need to write a best-selling book. Um, what I need to shoot for are 1,000 true fans. Uh, that's what Kevin Kelly, the editor of Wired, calls... Um, uh, 1,000 true fans. So basically it means that uh, as long as you're building up like a, a base of readers who really love your work a lot, they're going to purchase everything you buy. They're going to support your career and you can make it as a writer. So if, if you can shoot for 1,000 true fans, um, you know, 1,000 readers who are really passionately engaged in your work, you don't need to be a number one best-selling author. And that really takes a lot of weight off of you. And it definitely helped me get my first book out there. Obviously, you can spend all the time preparing in the world, but you don't really know what's going to happen until you put it out in the world. And I've been really fortunate that my reader base are so, my, my readers are so engaged. Um, you know, they read everything I write and, and they just, they write reviews for my books. They, they write, they send me back emails. And um, if you can get that going, you know, even if it's small at first, then you're at a place where you're at a position of power and you can really start to write your own paycheck and they're going to support you and you're going to really become location independent. You can, you know, write, do whatever you want. And that's, that's really the point where you need to get to. I think I think it is a mindset shift for sure, because everything that people usually want to do, they want to be the biggest and the best. And that's great to have those, to have that kind of intrinsic motivation to do that, but only if it doesn't scare you away from actually starting, right? Like it's great to be motivated to push forward and do better and, and bigger things. But if it's what holds you back from even starting, then we've got an issue. And I think that I had that same mindset shift in, in my own life, you know, through starting the site and now having it run for, for three years, you know, in the beginning, you, you think it's got to be the best thing. It's got to be the biggest podcast. And what you realize is if you do get those fans and, you know, I'm fortunate enough, just as like you said, to have these really passionate, loyal fans and community who know that they're going to be getting great stuff from me. And I know that I'm going to be getting great feedback and, and um, that people are going to love it. And when you start to get that, it's really eye-opening to say, like, I don't need to be the biggest name in this or this. I'd much rather have these true fans who are going to love what I do because it's much more of a symbiotic relationship then. You know, 
you're making stuff for them and with them in mind versus trying to make it for the world and hope that, you know, every single person out there wants to get it. And I, I just find that to be more of a, I, I don't know, more of a way that I would like to live my life because then you feel like you're making an impact for those people versus just writing it for the masses. Yeah, and behind every overnight success story are years and years, sometimes decades of hard work. Jack Canfield, for example, you know, he wrote a number of books that never got any attention at all before he wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. Guy Kawasaki, he's been writing books since 1991, you know, <laughs> so like 25 years. And that's why he has such a huge, you know, uh, base of readers. Um, and it's the same, you know, any, any author, any successful author, I mean, they, they paid their dues. They've been through the fire. They've failed. They've messed up. And it's, it's inevitable that things are going to go wrong. I, I do things wrong every time I do a new book. Every time I do a new launch, there's always something you know, wrong. But you can't let it stop you. It's a pebble in your shoe. You have to keep going. And it applies to online business, location dependence. It applies to travel. It applies to everything. Your life, basically. This concludes part one of my interview with Danny Flood. But if you liked part one, don't worry. There's more good stuff where that came from. And in part two, we delve deep into Danny's newest book, Hack Sleep. And he has some fascinating information on how to arrange work to your energy and all types of stuff that when I was listening to him, I was really rapt and attentive. This was stuff I had not heard before. It's really, really fascinating, this idea of hacking sleep. So we talk about that. We talk about how he balances work and travel. And we also dive into his online magazine and what it's like to run an online magazine and why he decided to do that. So if you want to find part two and you want to listen to part two, you can do that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods. That's where all our episodes live. Of course, you can get that on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on Jabbercast, the new app that I am using to listen to all my podcasts. So you can get all that part two however you're listening to part one and you definitely want to check that out so thank you guys for joining us today thank you as always for making us the number one rated travel podcast on itunes and until next time happy free travels I'll